and welcome to Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen, here with another story about historically significant people, places, and events from Connecticut's long and fabled past. Today on Amazing Tales, the effort to unionize the workers who made the hats in the hat city of Danbury, Connecticut, was one of the first such unionization efforts in the entire country. Well, things got so dicey, however, that the U.S. Supreme Court itself had to get involved. Here to help tell this incredible story is noted Danbury historian Bill Devlin, author of We Crowned Them All and Danbury's Third Century. And now, the Mad Hatters and the U.S. Supreme Court. When you talk about the movement to unionize workers in the United States, Danbury, Connecticut plays a role. Danbury, known for decades as the Hat City, made the majority of hats worn in the United States for a very long time. And the industry started earlier than many others. That means, according to Danbury historian Bill Devlin, that when the unionization movement began in the 1800s, it also started in the hatting industry ahead of most others. Some of the earliest unions in the United States were, were hatters' unions, 1850s, right after the printers and a few others. Bill says that the relationship between owners and workers in the hatting industry at the beginning was actually pretty smooth. Most owners had worked their way up through the school of hard knocks, and they didn't forget their roots. Most of the manufacturers had started out as what they call bench hatters. They learned the skill. They were part of the fraternity of these skilled workers. And there was a tradition of accommodation and compromise in the relationships between the bosses and the workers. It was a bit of a symbiotic relationship, a do-si-do, if you will, between those financing the hat-making operation and those actually doing the work. They had to have the resources. They had to have water supply. They had to have the raw materials to make the hats. But the one thing they couldn't make a hat without was the people who knew how to do it. Danbury's hatters were paid good wages. That's because they had these unique skills required to form and finish a hat. So life was good in Danbury for owners and for workers. Bill says that this set Danbury apart from other industrial centers that were springing up throughout Connecticut, in Waterbury, Naugatuck, or Torrington, for example. And the quality of the neighborhoods reflected that economic reality. People were able to build their own homes and build often their either one or two family homes usually. So it looks like a neighborhood of sort of small middle class homes. Those were often built by factory workers. Their solid wages helped keep workers from walking off the job very often. Both sides understood that they needed one another to prosper. Again, this helped keep the peace. With this understanding between them, there were some unspoken ways of doing things. For example, if management needed to bend some rules to get through a production pinch, well, more often than not, the union happily pitched in. During the 1870s, there were two very difficult economic depression cycles in the country, but the economy had emerged from both even stronger in the 1880s, so life was very good. But an incident occurred, an international incident, and it was nearly as devastating for Danbury as when incoming President John F. Kennedy opted not to wear a top hat to his inauguration in 1960. That decision is widely credited with bringing an end to the hatting industry, as it had been known for more than a century. Bill says that in the 1880s, a prominent European did a very similar thing, knocking Danbury off its perch as the hatting capital of the world, at least temporarily. Danbury had been making derbies 
And all of a sudden, the Prince of Wales comes back from, from a trip to Austria with this, this German Austrian peasant hat, and that becomes the new, the new rage. The switch in styling preference threw a monkey wrench into Danbury's economic prosperity. And it came at a time when manufacturers were nowhere near as nimble as they are nowadays. And they can't switch over, like, on a dime. They have to have different kinds of machinery. They have to, you know, retrain everything. It's like anything else. So they were not in a position to make that kind of hat. The owners, caught off guard, responded with a universal shutdown of all the factories, nearly a 100% citywide lockout of the workers. It was winter when demand for hats was low. But both sides knew that the factories were going to have to be back up and running in time to meet peak hat demand in the spring. Regardless, the lockout continued for two months, and this caused a great strain on Danbury's economy and its residents and shopkeepers. Those shopkeepers relied on the hatters for their business. Finally, a political solution was pursued. There were hatters on the town council, and, um, you know, if there's a problem, there's more of them than there (laughs) there are of anybody else. They stacked the town meeting, and they voted themselves relief money. Now, while that move was later deemed illegal on a technicality, it still demonstrated the incredible sway and power of the Hatters' Union. There were other forces, however, also coming to bear on the industry. New machines automated some of the same steps in the hat-making process that once were the exclusive purview of skilled craftsmen. And new immigrants to the U.S. were flocking to Danbury to assume some of these lower-skilled, lower-paying positions. Well, this completely undercut the craftsmen who had ruled the roost for decades. Owners had needed these workers to make the hats. But now, with machines able to do some of those same jobs, well, the unions took a hit. Plus, Bill says there was a new player on the scene in Danbury, Charles Merritt. Now, unlike other owners in Danbury, Charles had not come up through the ranks. In fact, just the opposite. Bill says he took a decidedly different view on the business of making hats. He's seeing it purely as a business, not as a tradition, not as a craft, not as a culture. He sees it purely as a business. Charles Merritt was not one of the bigger hat manufacturers in the city. In fact, his company's size always placed him under cost pressure, and that led him to hold down wages and other costs as much as he could. He had a philosophy about union relations, and it wasn't one that Danbury was used to at the time. He's not into compromise and accommodation. He's into victory. When Merritt came to town, he already had family in the city. In fact, his links were to one of Danbury's most prominent families. He's a cousin of the Ives family. From what we, little we know, they don't particularly like him that much. One reason for that is that Merritt was not a native Danburyan. He had grown up in upstate New York. Plus, he was a Quaker, which at that time was both unusual and unwelcome in Danbury. Now, while most hatting firms in Danbury routinely had the union-made labels sewn into their final products, Merritt's hats did not. And Bill says Merritt did not seek the same prestige and quality craftsmanship that the other previously established shops had done. His advertising slogan within the trade was, just a little bit better than the next best. <laughs> you know, talk about faint praise. Bill says that this slogan really positioned Merritt in a very negative light. It's like saying, well, the thing won't fall, up, fall apart on you, but like some of the others, but <laughs> it's pretty cheap. <laughs> the dichotomy of Charles Merritt, however, was that he was also a philanthropist. Later in life, he served as president of the Danbury Library. He also provided early financing for both Danbury Hospital and Henry Abbott Technical School. But Bill says he made those contributions as much because he wanted to control how things developed 
as he did because he was doing it out of the goodness of his heart. When the two-month-long lockout occurred, Merritt had been one of the leaders of organized owners' positions. Once the factories reopened, a good number of them became known as independent shops. That means they either used only some union laborers or no union laborers at all. The number of labor disputes in the 1880s had been increasing, despite the relative prosperity being enjoyed in society coming out of those two depressions. By the 1880s, everything's recovering and Danbury is booming. They're building, their population's doubling. The number of hat factories is, is doubling. At the same time, there's this laissez-faire mentality that's you know, being absorbed by a new generation of business people who believe that, you know, this is not right. You know, they, these people shouldn't be challenging us. Charles Merritt is one of these people. <laughs> and this increase in friction continued. There starts to be a little bit more conflict than normal. Um, if, there's, if there was a problem in the shop, the guys would just get up and walk out. You know, I guess we would call them wildcat strike today. But there seemed to have been a lot of those. As these union walkouts and management lockouts continued, union workers tended to be more hurt than the wealthier shop owners. And so did the workers in the related industries that supplied the hattie industry that had sprung up all over the region. But even the owners suffered during the labor strike, and this caused them to think about their own possibilities for solidarity. Overall, the situation simply took a huge toll on the city. All the hatters and eventually everybody in town belonged to a union, everybody in the entire city of Danbury. And the manufacturers also organized because they were they were competing with one another. They were cutthroat with one another. So, you know, this was an unusual thing for them to actually cooperate. As the situation deteriorated, Bill says the local clergy got involved. They negotiated a pact that came to be known as the Accords. It was an early form of arbitration. Both sides had to give a little, but the result was seven years of relative harmony and bliss. Now, although Merritt went along with the Accords, Bill says it was not completely meritorious. In fact, he draws a comparison to a modern-day industrialist tycoon, Jeff Bezos. Amazon's got that, that ad on TV about helping the guy become the nurse and all that stuff. Meanwhile, he's, he's working to prevent the workers from unionizing in, in the plants. With the turn of the century came a sharp turn in the direction of labor relations in Danbury. Another cut-rate hatter had entered Danbury, Dietrich Lowy. He was a German who, Bill says, followed a rather paternalistic management model, which was popular at the time in Germany. You work for me, I'll take care of you, but you have to do what I say and don't organize any union. Bill says Lowy and Merritt both had profit as a top priority, but in most other ways, Lowy was different from Merritt. He didn't want his, his workers to get hurt, in a way. He was, he's a different personality than Merritt. They both have the same interests, but much different personality. One point that Lowy was proud of was that his shop was 100% non-union. He said that the workers had a good situation and had open communication with him. They didn't need a union. But then came the United Hatters, Danbury's primary union. A representative met with Lowy and said they planned to unionize his shop. Lowy resisted. There was a walkout with all but 10 of his 250 workers leaving. Those workers knew that even though they didn't belong to the United Hatters, they would be blacklisted by the union if they didn't walk out. Most but not all of them did in fact find suitable work elsewhere in the industry around town. Lowy had to hire replacement workers and this took him months. 
And in the process, unionization in America had taken another major turn. A new group was now in place, the American Federation of Labor, better known as the AFL. A man named Samuel Gompers had organized this group, and he gave strong teeth to local unions. Now take the example of what had happened in Danbury. When Lowy said he wouldn't unionize his shop and replace the striking workers with other non-union help, the AFL responded by going to hat stores around the country and telling them to boycott Lowy's hats. And Lowy's business did take a big hit. Plus, the union dues charged nationwide by the AFL amassed large sums of money, giving Samuel Gompers tons of financial clouts. But then yet another major change occurred. Charles Merritt had sent his son, Walter Gordon Merritt, to Yale. And when Walter Gordon graduated, he brought a few fresh ideas to opposing the unions in the hatty industry in Danbury. First, he formed a new group, the American Anti-Boycott Association. And this was the first time that all hat shop owners nationwide had had their own united group to fight back against unionized labor. They joined and became unified, despite the fact that they fought each other mercilessly in the marketplace on price and other factors. The second thing he did was to review a relatively new law that had been passed by Congress in 1890. It was the Sherman Antitrust Act, which was designed to eliminate monopolies. His conclusion? Oh, okay, well, isn't a union the same thing as a monopoly because they're monopolizing labor? Merritt hired a like-minded lawyer from Wilton named Daniel Davenport. The Merritts met with Lowy and decided on a unique new strategy, have Lowy sue the United Hatters Union, saying that they, backed by the new AFL, were monopolizing labor. Instead of just suing the people who were working at Lowy, they sue random people who belong to the union. So there's over 200 of them. When the suit was filed in 1902, the workers had liens placed on their individual property holdings in the town land records. That meant that they couldn't sell their house or get a second mortgage without satisfying the lien. And some of those workers lived as far away as Norwalk. The impact was that their properties were legally tied up for the many years it took to resolve the case. Another tactic was to force the workers to go to court to testify about the union's tactics, even though they had no role in structuring those tactics. The case worked its way up through many channels. Lowy won at each stage, and therefore the fines to be repaid continued to grow ever larger. Finally, the Danbury Hatters case, as it came to be known, reached the United States Supreme Court. The high court ruled in favor of Lowy. That was six years after the suit was initially brought. The payout awarded to Lowy was substantial, and the question was, how would the 200 workers who were individually sued be able to somehow raise that much money? Well, Samuel Gompers and his nationwide AFL came to the rescue. Gompers raised a huge sum. Uh, he asked union people from all, the, all over the country to donate a dollar, I think it was. And they did that. The request for the $1 set aside was targeted for just one day. The money raised went to paying off the verdict. Bill says the secretary to the United Hatters was a Bethel resident named Marty Lawler. He says that Lawler found Walter Gordon Merritt and paid him the money, adding in a few choice words. Supposedly, uh, Lawler met Walter Gordon Merritt in the town hall, then handed him the money and said, here's your blood money. Several years later, the Sherman Antitrust Act was amended by Congress to exempt unions from its language on monopolies. 
Unfortunately, by the time all the dust had settled and the liens were released on the properties of the individual union members who had been sued, a number of them had passed away and never learned of the outcome. Union management relations would never return to the heyday that they were in the early days. And things for workers got even tougher as automation continued and mercury poisoning took its toll, which will be a topic of an upcoming later episode. And with JFK's decision to forego a top hat at his inauguration, well, the curtain slowly fell on Danbury's reign as the Hat City. That's it for this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I want to thank my guest for this episode, noted Danbury, Connecticut historian Bill Devlin, author of We Crown the Mall and Danbury's Third Century. Please follow me at my main podcast website, amazingtalesct.podbean.com. Also, in between episodes, you can check out my Facebook page at Amazing Tales CT. That's where I place photos supplementing my podcasts. Plus, I'd love to hear from you, and you can send me an idea of a story you'd like me to look into. If you liked what you heard, spread the word with your families and friends. See you next time on Amazing Tales from Off and On, Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. Amazing Tales from Off and On, Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. 